Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Thank you very much if you're one of our Patreon supporters. That is how we are able to make all of the shows that we make every week. We normally make four or five different shows a week on science, art, horror, the uncanny, the weird and black holes, amongst other things. And uh, if you'd like to support us, you can go to our Book Shambles Patreon, which is just patreon.com slash bookshambles. Thank you very much. Today's episode is uh, a two-parter because Josie did one of the interviews and I did the other interview. We were separated on this occasion. Josie spoke to Tom Wyman and I spoke to A.L. Kennedy. I wanted to ask you about, because as as a novelist and someone who's done a lot of short stories as well, what is the different process in that bit where you go i mean does a story come to you and you start you, you play with it in your head and you go oh this is a yeah this is i think this is going to be quite a long story or and then others where you go i've had an idea for a short story so do you have ideas for stories or does it come to you very early on that you go i have an idea for a novel i have an idea for a short story yeah, pretty much, because, you know, it'll be a bigger idea if it's if it's a novel. I mean, I'm a, I may have told you this story before. I had a friend who worked in the holidays in a frozen chicken factory, and he was in the weighing room, and he was being taught by a guy who'd been all his life in the chicken weighing room. And the thing was, you take your chicken, you put it on the weighing scales, and then you throw it in the three-pound bin or the two-pound bin or the whatever bin. But the guy had been there so long, he would pick up a chicken and go... Three and a half pounds, four pounds, didn't need the weighing scales anymore. And my friend, in his soul and skeleton, decided that he never wanted to be there for so long that he could pick up a chicken and know how much it weighed. Um, but you do get the the equivalent of, uh, that's going to be about 250, isn't it? Which, which you kind of need because people will say, we have a space that's 3,000 words long or 5,000 words long police supply so you kind of have to know and it sounds quite heartless and unartistic but it's just you get used to how long it takes to say a thing and a novel is a monster a novel is years of research a novel will eat every other idea you have um but sort of be slightly less tiring to write than a short story because short stories are so intense because they are little um i mean they, they didn't used to be little they used to be the premier form and they used to be really quite long. I mean, like check off short story. Now you it would be a novella or a short novel. Um, but it's quite high octane because it all has to work um, in, in order f- for it to function, particularly now, because you've only got two and a half thousand words to establish at least one human being and their emotional state and their psychology and how they got there or how they're going to change and what they're doing and who, where and where. So it all has to work and fit and you're constantly trying to get layers of meaning in so that people don't notice but they know where they are and they feel that they're having a complete experience while only spending an hour with it or half an hour with it or however 
how often do you find yourself i mean i I sometimes see short stories as being very much like jokes it doesn't mean they're funny but often their structure seems to be Mm -hmm. it, it, it builds to a reveal it builds to the um and how often do you find yourself have you ever gone and again i'm inverted commas around punchline but oh hang on a minute that is a great end for a story now i just have to get the story that leads there sometimes i mean there's no sort of an idea even for a short story you'll get a bit of dialogue or you'll get view or you'll get a what if or you'll get oh ah so it ends there so how do i get that you know um the idea doesn't come to you as a complete thing normally or i haven't found it you get a critical mass of stuff that seems to belong together and i have asked people how do you know it belongs together and everybody has said i don't know but i do <laughs> yeah which is very helpful when you're talking to people who are starting out um and it doesn't seem to depend on what your primary you know i said to philip pullman because he's really visual and i'm really not and i was saying you know they're the same color because i kind of you know it's just a, like a feeling with me and he's going yeah no i don't know but you do it's like when you know you're in love you don't know why, but it's different. And you're hoping that, you, and you kind of get to judge when you have enough of a critical mass that you can actually start and it won't die on its arse. And, and that stage is when you're going, Ooh, 250 words, 5,000. Um, so, yeah, uh, I don't know where that was going. Just, but that's, yeah. I want to pick up on this. So when you talk about the visual nature of it, and it's something I've only found out about quite recently. I think it's called anaphasia. And I can't remember if we talked about this last time, which is the level of visual imagination that people have. And it's only, it seems it's only very recent research that it's been discovered that there's a, a real disparity in terms of Ooh. when someone reads a sentence or when someone is just imagining something. Was a, uh, and, and that even visual artists, there are visual artists who have almost no visual imagination. The visual imagination is what is placed on the canvas. So in terms of your process when you're imagining a world, do you, how vividly do you see that? How, how much of what is in your head, the picture in your head, is something you're trying to convey on the page or how much of it is almost directly on the page as it comes out from you? Yeah, I've now, I've now remembered how to answer your actual previous question, which was, I mean, there are literally stories that have punchlines. And I remember the first time I went to a professional writer with a story and the thing was that this woman had a feeling and then she realized why basically and that and he, and he literally said the story has a punchline so when you've got the punchline you can't have three pages after that because the story has a punchline <laughs> you don't go shaving a haircut two bits and another shave and a bit of a dance and some hair is there anything else you want yeah no it's just <laughs> shaving there it's like that's another yeah. story stop no, no, no when to stop. I mean, some are circular. So you, you know, you, you have to kind of work all of that out. So you, you know when to stop. But it's it's got to be, uh, you know, musical like a joke. Uh, anyway, it's 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 got to have descriptions that are detailed enough to effectively be a joke. That way, you're always looking for if, like, you know, when Billy Billy Connolly talks about a jaggy bonnet, that's exactly the way to describe what Christ is wearing. If you're Billy Connolly at that time. So there's all of that. 
so now I've answered that question, I've forgotten what the well, answer. Well, no, no, no. Now I'm going to ask you another. It's going to be like a kind of two Ronnie sketch. Yeah. Where uh, I will ask you another question, and then if you keep going back to the previous question, that 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 will be great. Um, oh, that is, but th th actually, that that was one of the things. Oh no! Visual sense, visual sense. No, I. No, no, no. We're going to come back to that. We're going to come okay. back to that. You're okay. going to answer that when I that. ask yeah, the next question. Okay. Then we'll we'll get to that one. But uh, no, I just want to follow up on what you were just saying then, and then we'll get to the anaphasia uh, thing, which mm -hmm. is that is something that I find quite interesting in terms of the and I don't know the reaction from your readers because that bit of there is an end to a story and you shouldn't drag it out is something that I find in a lot of cinema now there is if you watch a lot of films from 40s 50s 60s 70s and then somewhere around the 70s I think it changes a film ends it literally goes I, I always oh, think yeah. of a film like Shaft you know the great black exploitation movie where basically yeah. he grabs the girl they get in a car and the building blows up and the credits roll there's no I wonder how he's getting on with that girl now because they seem to be getting quite friendly there's no I've right. brought the person that was kidnapped back home because we can do that we can you know and it and I wonder how much whether you've seen a kind of a, a, a change and also in the way that as someone who teaches writing quite a lot that bit where the fear that unless everything is laid out of and this is then what happened to them and just so you know and then they went to live there in primrose cottage and that all happened yeah, whether you yeah. see a change in that yeah i mean when especially when people start writing they don't really know what story they're trying to tell and they don't really know what it's about and if you don't know what it's about you don't know when it stops and you don't know actually which bit of it you've picked or whose point of view it's from um and people get very nervous. Some people, they can't think how to end things, like, you know, the sketch comedy problem. I don't know when this stops. And you can just stop. Um, and then you get literal overkill that they kill the protagonist, because that's the only way they can think of ending it. <laughs> just gets hit by a train, um, which would be lovely if that actually literally was, was how they did it, but they don't. Um, so this kind of lack of understanding of what the material is. Um, and yeah, those, I mean, I blame the Lord of the Rings, really. That damn thing had 18 ends. And I mean, you it's do a very in... bad short story. I have to say, yeah. short stories go, Lord of the Rings, I think, is a disaster. It is not short. Um, but, you know, in the book, it makes perfect sense. And actually, the, the ending that they missed out is the important ending, which is you come home and the evil is at home, too. And you have to defeat that, and you can because you're different. That's the most important fucking bit, and they missed it out for all the soft focus and crying. God bless them. Um, so you're always looking at what is what 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 is the nature of this thing, and how can I most express it? And um, you're just always trying to get all of the bells and whistles working. Um, and to go back to senses. I mean, you know, there is that thing. There are so many neurons that are about sight. We are so visual as a thing. But, yeah, some people aren't. Some, some readers aren't. And I, by accident, when I was doing workshops, three a day and one in the evening, and just talking, talking, talking in dry rooms and endlessly having, you know, opportunistic uh, respiratory infection just because I was in so many different microclimates. Um, I went to a uh, elocutionist speech therapist to say, how do, how do I not lose my voice? Because uh, I am a theatre student, but this isn't quite that. I'm, not, I'm never in very big spaces. 
but how do I not lose my voice? Because it's driving me nuts. I'm in pain all the time. I'm croaking by the end of the day. And we did stuff that was not great. <laughs> she was not great. And we did Round and Round the Rugged Rocks, the Rugged Rascal brand, which I never need to say. So please get that out of my head. And I was beginning writing. <laughs> I was on book three, I think. Um, but the one thing she did, she gave me a bit of an offcut of a Russian novel, just a, a very bland page from a Russian novel to read out, just to sight read with no preparation. And I, I just couldn't give it anything. I could not read it in a way that meant it was not boring. And she said, well, what's your dominant sense? And my dominant sense is smell. Because if, you know, if I hug you, I'll remember you. If I just see your face, Good, good luck with me seeing you tomorrow and in any way remembering that we've met um, or the five pounds that you lent me. So as soon as I said that, she said, well, what is the passage smell of? And it was just a corridor. I think, as I said, I think it was from uh, Crime and Punishment. It was like Raskolnikov perhaps going into a Russian building and up some stairs, you know. I mean, it was kind of, it was, it was something you'd cut out of the movie. But you, I can remember now. It's like the smell of damp plaster, the smell of stale cabbage cooking, the smell of sweat. And suddenly I could read it in a way that was real. And I went home and I was kind of really on fire because it's a point where you're just trying to learn things. It's like, well, okay, um, I tend to, to tell stories that are from an interior viewpoint so you never really see the outside of the protagonist unless somebody else is describing them because the camera you know there's that Lauren Bacall Humphrey Bogart movie Dark Passage where Bogart looks at himself in the mirror but it's really awkward and people don't really do it um, but I can think when I'm writing something what does it smell of that's my way in and then I'll add the other senses for people who are normal <laughs> just so that you're always hitting, not in a mechanistic way, but you're always looking at, well, if somebody was hearing, how would they get that in? If somebody was mainly looking at things and they and there are colors to the senses. You know, I, I can see somebody who's across the road or up a mountain. I can't touch somebody who's across the road or up a mountain. I can't smell, you know, there's an intimacy that goes from smell and taste and touch outwards. And, and at some point you have to think, well, what's the most useful one that I want now? Plus smell, that's the one that short circuits and goes straight to your amygdala and makes you have emotions. And you can do that on the page because it works exactly the same way, just immediate, visceral. Um, so actually, actually as a writer, you have to read, you know, a, a fair amount of basic neurology um, just, just to look at how do things work. Or how, how do you scan a line? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you did the cat sat on the ornate mat holding the empurpled throne in its forepaws, you, when you scan that, your eye doesn't go, that's not how we read. It goes hoppity, hoppity, hoppity. I don't know how. It's, it's, it's like light knowing the quickest way to get to something, which always blows my mind. The, the eye hops between very basic nouns and verbs and all of the bullshit purple stuff that we kind of find distasteful. We're finding it distasteful because we keep having a jump mm. over bullshit. <laughs> so 
you're literally looking at a physiological reason for people being irritated by purple prose. And I just, I find all of that stuff really fascinating. And, and hopefully it makes me think, I don't need impurpled because nobody says that. It's weird, isn't it? Because I remember I always used to love all those kind of things. And then part of my education was reading Mills and Boone. Because Mills and Boone, there's an enormous amount of... They're, they're overly descriptive. And I know they have a very... It, 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 it's a precision job to do. It's very oh, yeah. specific yeah, at the beats you have to hit of the story. But I was I used, the first one I used, I used to read out aloud from it with... I forget what orchestral backing I used to use. From, I can't uh, think I've seen you do that either. Stormy Vigil, it might have been. Which yeah, is yeah. Uh, all, all about a, a woman who ends up... It turns out the lighthouse keeper, I think, is a former English lecturer. And uh, is a... But yeah. the way that she goes into the kitchen and there is a it's that interesting point that to me as almost like you say i mean i know what's in the kitchen now i don't need to know any more details that the, you, you've given and that again that must tell us something about first of all the different ways that people read which is some details someone has their fully furnished the room for other people they need all the furniture to actually be put in in front of them to know what is in the room yeah, yeah, and and you sort of go for a for a target um, audience, and you know, there's bound to be somewhere that you can do a Venn diagram of people who like Doctor romances and who also need to know what's in all of the cupboards. Um, and I mean, I've done, you know, I used to work with social workers, and I'd bring in a bit of oh, there was a Julia Roberts film where she had an abusive husband, and there's there's just a scene where the husband kicks off and is really oh, something the enemy isn't it the, yeah the, sleeping the, with the enemy yeah so i would show a bit from sleeping with the enemy and i'd just say you know as as social workers who pay attention can you just give me uh, a factual description of what you've seen so that somebody would know what happens without judging allowing somebody to get the facts so that they can judge because obviously they have to write reports and and they're not report writing people they've, they've come into social work not because they're good at doing sort of plodding journalism they've got into it because they want to help people but they have to write all this shit so um you know you can't do he's a psychopath because you're not a psychiatrist and you don't have a report and yes he's a bad man but just give me the facts and certain people would always, there's a scene, it's a violent scene that's mainly in a kitchen. Certain people would always say what was in the cupboards. And you've got somebody trying to kill a woman, this enormous fight and these detailed descriptions, which are mainly about canned goods, which is kind of extraordinary. That's fascinating. The, um, I was thinking about when you talked about the, Sometimes it's like, oh, the quickest way to end the story, and then they died, which is, yeah. I suppose, the next step from it was all a dream. And I was thinking that the first short story writer that I ever kind of, the the, the smallness of it would have been Raymond Carver. I don't know when I first saw oh. him years ago. But that bit where you would have a story and the end would be, and then he put the shoes back in the wardrobe. Yeah. And that would be it. That would be it. It would be about someone who'd looked at some shoes and they hadn't been certain whether to put the shoes on yeah. and they'd worn the shoes. And someone had said something about the shoes and then he put the shoes back. And and that would have been, and obviously there's far more psychology going on there. But, yeah. but I think and he was the bad. first. Yeah, I was the first person that I just went, wow, the, these stories are about everything. And yet on on the if you just describe, if you give a one sentence, what happens? A man tries some shoes. 
and then puts them back again. <laughs> we go, oh, it doesn't sound enough, does it? Does he die in the end? Yeah, actually, the shoes, uh, they eat him. The shoes eat him. They they, they, they end up being, being yeah, yeah. vampiric shoes. I, I, re I read him first. I was a student. I would have been 19 years old, something like that. I'd heard about him. I was sort of writing monologues, but I had, you know, the idea I might write short stories. So, you know, I started small. Um, and I got a collection. I've still got it somewhere. And I just read the story and it would be so kind of eff effective and affecting and yet downbeat that I literally would throw it across the room because it just hurt. You know, it was doing something to me. But then I would want to read another one because they were also extraordinary. So I'd go across the room and I'd pick it up and I'd read another one and it would have another one of those soft fadeaway endings and I'd throw it away <laughs> It's the most kind of dynamic uh, relationship I've had. I've had with a writer, um, but yeah, you know, people, everybody does it differently. Hopefully, because that's kind of why you would ever read another one. Do you yeah. find? I mean, over this last few years, and and I mean, you you ha you you are, you know, vocal and and you're an activist and you campaign on on a lot of things. Do you find is if you look back at your different short story collections, do you find there were some which appeared to be more an attempt to escape and that now, as you were just saying about that in particular, this all of those things that were going on with the DWP, that now they become something to confront? I don't think I've ever done the escaping thing. I mean, reading is escaping. And for me, because you're really, really multitasking when you write, it's a huge escape. It's like meditating. It's absolutely joyful, no matter what horrible shit I'm writing about. I have always been moved to write about horrible shit. I mean, my childhood was not delightful, and I was aware that other people had not got a clue what's that like, what that's like, and 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 and, and other children did. And there's a family that you're in, and there's a, a family of people who are oblivious and go skiing. Um, and then. As I, as I said, I was working with multiply deprived people in multiply deprived areas who had, this is back in 89, 90, from 87 actually, with working with profoundly disabled people or people in jail or people who uh, were really in like end of life care as they call it, happily. Um, people who were deaf, I couldn't do because I didn't have deaf sign, but I, you know, I had a blind writers group. Um, and nobody was having fun even back then. Everyone was having a crap time. And everyone was putting up with constant pain, progressive illness, death coming at you really fast, being abused in the street because you look different. You know, the full kind of kaleidoscope of, of awful shit that can happen. And... You, it was really rare that a support network or a centre or a manager would be stepping up and saying, can we make this better instead of worse? Could we make you happier? Could we give you dignity? And I ended up working for this guy called Peter Eccleston, who was the head of the social work department in Hamilton and East Kilbride, who wanted to give people dignity and give people literally a voice and give them the dignity of being writers. Um, and that was interesting because I had one group that had been one of my longest groups running where nobody was literate, but we wrote poems together. We sort of thought about what we wanted to say and as a group, which would be different if somebody was missing, there was a genuine group identity because um, nobody had told them that that wasn't possible. 
and we would write about things, which we would have decided that was what we wanted to write about. And there was a guy with severe cerebral palsy, but otherwise absolutely fine. Um, guy with Down syndrome, guy with Down syndrome and some other stuff. He was terribly polite, like a comedy vicar. But when he was going into a fit, he would swear like you wouldn't believe. Absolutely not like himself. Um, and a uh, ginger guy <laughs> with Down syndrome, so it's a little group with people who were not capable of reading and writing, but they could tell me what they wanted and we could throw it around until it was okay. And on some days it was it didn't work and some days it was terrific. And we eventually we had a little book of poems and we got some grown up writers, man and a woman, to read the little poems in this assembly of all the senior social work high hegens in Glasgow chambers, just Glasgow council chambers. And the guys had got t-shirts for the writers group that they were in and they were dead happy and it was a day out and P Peter Eccleston was there dead happy and I think the director of the centre was there dead happy. All of these other people, you're just thinking, this is going to be great. And they read the poems, the poems are great. This big long poem about, um, yeah, enthusiastic cab drivers decorate their cabs and take disabled people and poor kids and dying kids to the seaside, yay. And one of the really early poems that they really wanted to do was, please take us somewhere else, because we've been going to Troon on our outing for the whole of our adult lives, maybe just Rothsea instead of Troon. I mean, nothing ungrateful, and it was called Troon, 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 because <laughs> they always go to fucking Troon. And lovely little quiet things like we sit and watch the cab drivers play football on the beach. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, just a very nice little knife in the ribs about you're not really helping here. This is patronizing nonsense. And I thought everybody would be happy because they'd made this great achievement and they'd achieved the dignity of uh, we are now published poets. And everybody's face was a mixture of rage and terror because if clients can do that, they can tell on us. Mm. And that was very early on with working with those groups, but that, that you just know where something terrible happened regularly because you get that reaction. It's like, there's the, you know, this was supposed to be fun and a bit shit. These people can think and feel and talk. I do not in any way want to know that. And, and nobody really wanted to talk about the, the time you held their head under the water when you bathed them, because they, they lived that. They wanted to do other stuff. They wanted to talk about being in outer space. But the fact that they were existing as a much more sentient being than had been thought freaked the fuck out of people. And, and that filled me, you know, I was full of so much rage. I mean, I did a little short film for BBC Education, and then I did Stella Does Tricks. And... <laughs> I watch them now and I just think, oh, you were quite cross, weren't you? <laughs> you were just a boiling tank of fury. Uh, and the first short story that I ever wrote that I seriously sat down and thought, I will write this the best I can and then I will find out if I'm shit. Because if I try 100% and I'm still shit, then I can't do this. And you kind of have to, you know, you always have to do that in anything, but it's always a bit scary. Uh, laboriously wrote it but it's all about you know a little 
person who is like all of the other little people that never get to be in movies and never get to be in stories. And it's kind of always been that. Because that's kind of my jam. Brilliant. Well, your jam, which is available in various different jars. Now you're going to make some kind of daytime segue that I've, you forced me into by using the jam, Ellen. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we're attempting to survive our time. It's out, it's out now in paperback, isn't it? I think. It is out in paperback. Uh, it's it's got the same cover as the hardback because nobody actually owns that, so they could they could use exactly the same cover. Um, yes, we're attempting to survive our time, and uh, please buy it. We'll cut out the last bit. It looked too desperate. Uh, the, we might keep it in actually. Maybe it, I'm not sure whether people are. I don't, I don't know how well the desperate dollar's doing at the moment. Well, we um, might do, I'll tell you what. We might put out well. two versions, like like the two versions of uh, Will Smith's "I Am Legend," and we'll see which one uh, which one the market go with. You know, we'll do a test. And as Robin said, we are attempting to survive our time. A.L. Kennedy's new collection of short stories is out in paperback now. This is Book Shambles uh, producer Trent, by the way. If this is your first time ever listening to the podcast and you're wondering who this strange voice is that's popped up in the middle of the episode, normally I pop up at the start. Last week I popped up at the end. It's uh, It's been an exciting time for all of us. Anyway, on to the second part of this week's episode. Here is Josie talking to Tom Wyman. I am very excited because today I'm speaking to Tom Wyman, who is a writer who... I was I was trying to think of broadcaster, but then I was thinking just because I say oh, everyone is a broadcaster, yeah, it's, no. it's it's too much to add. He's this is actually the first time I've ever spoken in public. Wow, that's really? Not actually, it's not actually. Oh. I teach. That's kind of public. Um, so, Tom, you're a philosopher and you're a writer, and your new book is called Infinitely Full of Hope. That's yes. right, isn't it? I mean, subtitle up. now. It made me give it a subtitle. I I before when we were meant to film this. Last week, yeah. I made a point of remembering the subtitle, and now I have forgotten it. It's um, it's uh, it's a uh, fatherhood and the future in an age of crisis and disaster. I think they've called it. Yes, and uh, like obviously, all of this resonates so massively with me as well. Like I, uh, whether or not one can hope and how one can hope, I feel has been something that. I've been trying to wrestle with for about 10 years <laughs> and trying to understand better. And um, again, like the book a lot is about, um, oh, that's a silly thing to say. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be like, we'll cut this, but we won't cut this. We'll just have me floundering. <laughs> if I know what it's like. And the book is about um, something that I, I know we have in common, which is being a new parent against the backdrop of everything. And um, I, I feel like that must have been what prompted you to write the book. But had it been something that you'd been brewing for a long time prior to becoming a father? and like Yeah, I mean, like the question of how we can hope. <laughs> it's, really, it's interesting to me. Like, um, you know, I'm someone who tends more naturally to sort of um, pessimism, certainly, if not despair. Um, and I kind of want to figure out, like, when is it actually legitimate to hope? I mean, it's really central to sort of political action, um well to acting in an ethical way and generally a sort of like a sort of faith in a way although i don't want to call it faith um that we can um bring something good about through acting but a lot of the time in the world when we try and do good even if we 
have like reasons to think what we're doing is good at the time. It just turns out to have like just, you know, be forced into a most of general catastrophe um, that we're, um, we're living through. Uh, there's so much of sort of the bad things in the world end up being like um, not just uh, uh, the result of some sort of conspiracy of spite, but just they're, they're helped in a way by the good intentions of people who want to change things as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so from that sort of frightening and, and sort of awareness of how difficult it is, how did you find it possible to get to, because I really like the fact that at the end of the book, you've got strategies, actual strategies for how to do it. Like, how did you work those out? How did you get to that point? Um, by spending the previous decade reading philosophy by myself. Nice. See, it's useful. <laughs> Yeah. It's not a luxury. <laughs> Despair is a luxury. Yeah. Okay. Not just by myself, talking about philosophy as well. And, and also, like, obviously, you, you know, learning to how to build relationships with people in the, in the world and what it is to, to navigate them. Yeah. Um, obviously, yeah. there's lots of kind of people like Adorno and Kafka and um, Jean Rhys in the book. So, you know. <laughs> Sunny, optimistic characters. Jean, I mean, to be fair to Jean Reese, when they interviewed her and they said to her, oh, Jean, your books are so sad. How do you cope with such a sad life? She was like, I get all the sadness into the books and I have a grand old time. <laughs> okay. and it's, you know, yeah. she's absolutely, she's got it all in the books. She's got them out there and she can do some, have yeah. a good life. That's what I did with this book. I got all the hope <laughs> into the book and now I can be sad as much as I like. Yes, yes, and if anyone says, why are you so miserable? You can just point and tap. Yeah, the so I've this book about hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, this is an interesting question and one that I definitely feel I wrestle with. Because in my work, I try very hard to get to a point where I really believe there are grounds for hope and grounds for optimism. And a lot of my work will end up like the conclusion I came to sort of really, really thinking a lot about um, climate change and parenthood was having a child is intrinsically a hopeful act and that having a child is to invest in the future and to say, I want to try. And I felt really sure of that. And I felt really like everyone should have kids. It's great. But the problem is, is when that is what you believe, people really expect you to to live up to it at all times. (laughs) And 2020, at least for most of the time, has been a real uh, test of yes. faith. And so do you find that people now, like, oh, do you worry that now the book's going to come out, people are really going to seek you to be their kind of hope coach at all right. times? Yeah. Um, well, I suppose I am slightly worried about that. Um, yeah. I don't, <laughs> I mean, I've got strategies in the book. I think they could just read the book. I don't want to oh, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about um, what's it called? Hauntology. Wait, I wrote it down. Uh, applied hauntology. Can you explain that concept a little bit? Um, I suppose I'd like to answer the other question. Oh, yeah. I'm too excited. Okay, <laughs> can, go first. Yeah. Um, so, like, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, like, this year has um, obviously been very difficult. I mean, I submitted the final draft of the manuscript on the same day that we I would say day, same week that we all went into lockdown um, oh, so, wow. <laughs> like uh you know uh, you'd be like, um, I have some appendix, I, have yeah. some appendix. <laughs> I had to like kind of had loads of footnotes just like well of course there's a pandemic so it should get <laughs> yeah. all worse all of a sudden and um yeah uh I mean I don't think it is 
the fact that things have got worse over the course of this year um, refutes any of the points I've made in my book. If anything, it brings them into starker relief as, um, you know, what I've done strategically, philosophically in the book, as I've said, well, everything could be unselvagely bad for us, but having, having kids is, I mean, as you say, it's an investment um, uh, in, in the future. It's more like, it's kind of like, you know, children um, represent something new. They represent, obviously, you know, the sort of uh, um, the possibility uh, the bare possibility of something better coming about over time yeah. uh, and one way you could respond to the world being really bad right now is to think well things are gonna be bad for a while at least we are gonna have really difficult lives but you know what um it, it, it's in a way sort of slightly infantile to assume that life would always be easy anyway um and uh, the point you know you can you can live well while thinking about how do we make the world somewhere where people after us could have better rather than worse lives. Um, doing the opposite to our parents' generation, I suppose. Yes. Uh, and how do we equip our children? And I mean our children in the kind of broadest sense, because I don't think you actually have to be a parent to, to, to think about children and to be involved with children. Yeah, exactly. um, how do we equip our children to be the kind of individuals who would be able to seize the opportunity to live well um in the sort of you know some sort of political sense yes com completely and how do we keep well it's like instilling into them this idea of like hope in in the right kind of sense not in in the wrong one um, yeah yeah i think yeah i think it's massively important and i also think that uh, there's just something in me that it, it's in the introduction of your book when you're talking about people who are like the problem is life is never never worth it because pain is far bigger than pleasure and it outweighs it and just yeah. the fact that I completely agree that for me I simply cannot say that it's not worth being alive even under terrible exactly. conditions and, and even you know the very fact that like even in the worst possible circumstances people still find ways to connect with one another and even to like have fun with one another to me is like the reason for going on is that life is always good and children do this as well when you're raising them obviously the book is about becoming a father so it's not actually about being a father but like but you know since iggy my son was um was born you know i've sort of seen this a lot like he takes such immense joy in like these really simple things it's just wonderful to see it gives you you know it gives you a, it makes you feel at home in the world when he sort of um he does like he, oh, he, he at home in the world is such a beautiful way of describing it because that's how she is when she walks around the sea my daughter when she sees an ant yeah. everything feels so close to her yeah. sorry i didn't mean to interrupt but i wanted to just emphasize yeah, well, the phrase at home in the world is a is a phrase from um german philosophy i think it's Novalis. he says that philosophizing is the attempt to feel at home in the world wow which is sort of the opposite of kind of people trying to impose categorization or yeah. trying to master the world yeah 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 he was like a romantic so he's <laughs> love it and his categorization and, god bless um, it um but um the uh yeah, sorry. I didn't mean yeah so yeah i mean you know i mean i just kind of wanted to talk about iggy stroking cats <laughs> eating beans like it's just, yes. just lovely and he just gurgles it like just eating a big fistful of beans just going yum <laughs> <laughs> it's 
my daughter started lying on the sofa and going, it's so relaxing. <laughs> she doesn't know what that means. It's so relaxing. But here's the other thing. By being around, like, by being around children that you love, and again, as you said, it's not about whether they are biologically your children. It's about extended family, you know, loving family and friends, all of those things. By being around children and connecting with them, you're also living that life. It's yeah. not just that you're going, oh, look at them, innocent them. It's fun and it make, it brings you back to that and you do inhabit that space with them. Yeah. And then ideally you inhabit that space more when away from them too. And so like, maybe this is stuff people have been saying forever, but it's true. So Yeah, well, people haven't been saying it enough recently, I think. Yes, I agree. I, and I think as well, um, I've been wrestling a lot recently with like, how much I hate being glued to my phone and yet how much I'm glued to my phone and what is so wonderful is that my daughter is not the slightest bit interested in being glued to a device because she does not have a device mm -hmm. the only time she sort of she's well she's got one of those Nat West things that you use for card and she pretends that's her phone but yeah. um Nicky wants to have a phone I mean he he looks, he sees us using yeah. it. And like, oh, yeah, she does he's too. He's got a little sort of fake iPad thing. She's like some baby Einstein, which tells you what Tiger is and stuff. Um, uh, but he is also glued to, he is sometimes glued to television. Oh, he's yeah, TV doesn't very get obsessed with Hey Dougie, you should watch forever. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, how much uh, your book's got a lot of humour in it um, and how much I enjoyed that. Because I feel yeah. like often when I'm reading, uh, a philosophical book or a political book I enjoy it a lot but it rarely does it feel like the references are so <laughs> well chosen like even just references to the Simpsons in a very good subtle way have been really fun how did you find that process of writing it like how much is humour a big deal for you um I think humour is just something that finds its way into my writing like I was I was saying before the uh, we spoke, but I don't. I didn't. I was worried the book wasn't particularly funny because I think sometimes when I write things, a lot of the time the appeal is that they're quite funny. And I was worried the book wasn't funny enough, and so I'm glad that you think it is funny. Yeah, um, a friend of mine once said he, he was a philosopher, an academic philosopher. Um, uh, once said that like the thing is when you read my work, he, like he was reading like a philosophical paper of mine, and said the thing is that. Tom, the, the problem with your research is that you structure everything around jokes. And I'm like, why well, I, I don't do that? I'm not doing it on purpose. It's like, um, you know, somehow um, the jokes just appear um, without me trying. But so that's not, life as well. Yeah, that is a bit like life. Yeah, yeah, things just are just seem amusing to you, and so you put them in. Yeah. I suppose that's probably what's happened here. Is but I thought of something is like something in The Simpsons, um, and I've just sort of added it. Because yes. I, well, I, I think being playful as well is such an important way to kind of continue to engage with dreadful things. Yeah, when yeah. you're trying to, you know, bear the weight of climate change, the only strategy is to be playful as well. Because how else? Well, I mean, I've always, I mean, I think we have this big, we have this, one big problem with climate, combating climate change is the tendency towards um, the doominess, which is. Um, itself has this sort of libidinal appeal, right? I think there's all this sort of like, so sort of this stuff about like, well, you know, the world will see six degrees of warming, warming, and it'll all be a six in magma, and like, 
you know, people are like, oh, yeah, that's going to happen. Yeah, we're, we're, we're rubbish. We're never going to do it. And like, I think that people like that. People like to be resigned to that stuff because it means you don't have to do anything. No, 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 sorry. It's definitive, isn't it? It's I've yeah. got the answer, the answer is bad, and I'm right. Yeah, exactly. And we can't take that. I try. And I can just live my life how I want in the short term because there's nothing we can do. Yeah. Um, in a way, hope um, is sort of a bad thing to have because it, it obliges you to try and do things which are hard and unpleasant. That's like in um, Rebecca Solnit, where she says hope isn't an answer in itself. It's the hammer to smash through the door to make you active. You know, yeah. exactly that. Like, and, and in the bit where in the book where you're talking about Greta Thunberg and she's saying, I don't want hope as a sop. Yeah, like, yeah. She's saying, I want you elders to panic. But what she means is like, I don't want you to be like, yeah, well, children of the future, man. <laughs> I don't want you to hope, I want you to panic. Yeah, but it's, it's I want you to panic, I think is important. Oh, yeah. yeah, she wants the elders to panic. Yeah, she wants, she, wants to panic. she doesn't want to go, oh, I hope. Because for people at Davos go, well, I hope we can solve climate change. And two is like, <laughs> I mean, that makes sense to go, why? I mean, why do you just hope? It's like, um, I think there's an example I use in a book from, uh, from, a, from a philosophy paper, which is like, when you don't, uh, if someone, if, if some, sometimes where, where the word hope can be just hope, it can just be misapplied. Um, and someone has a sort of direct agency over things. So if someone goes, can you return? Turn that book you borrowed from me, and they, and they go. I hope so. I mean, it just seems like a That's exactly what people at Davos say. Like, well, we hope we can save climate change are doing because they could actually. Yeah. It's change a, the world. It's a the do or do not. There is no try. It's that bit. Yeah. But um, yeah, even worse when it's someone with power, with absolute, like, with definite verifiable power, yeah. being like, I just hope that we can sort this out. But <laughs> exactly. Hope yeah. kind of emerges through powerlessness. So it's sort of like um, for a certain kind of powerlessness. Um, and so that's one of the things that makes it difficult. Um, and one of the things that makes it hard to have. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit more because obviously in the book you you reference lots of different writers and uh, philosophers, but uh, I'd love it if you just wanted to talk about who you love reading for pleasure. Like, who do you enjoy reading? Who did you most enjoy reading when writing the book? As well? uh, I was writing the book. Um, I mean, probably my uh, favourite... I, I mean, my favourite writer in terms of ones that I write a lot about in my book is probably Jean Rees. I think I get the most pleasure out of reading her. She's the uh, best. She's incredible. She's wonderful and profound. And, yeah. I think it's amazing, especially the sort of quartet of early novels. Yeah. Um, I've got a poster of her in my living room and shes it's when she's older and she's sort of going, um, she's sort of peeking out from a doorway and, what, and she looks so sort of wry and yeah. amusing and everyone who comes in goes, is that grandma? And I'm always like, oh, I wish. Yeah, wish. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's sort of like the sort of image people have of her as this sort of old, yeah, sort of, but, um, sort of older Reese who sort of was a literary celebrity. But yeah, <laughs> sort of younger, sad Reese who lived in obscurity. I like the early work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, obviously, like Kafka as well, um, yeah. who is, I, as you say in the book, is less often like viscerally unpleasant to read, but I sort of find infinitely fascinating. Um, but um, <clears throat> yeah, in, in, so it turns out to be reading for pleasure. Who do I read for pleasure? Um, I, uh, I just wrote a thing about, um, I just wrote a thing for the New Humanist about Peepo. Ah, 
Pick of the genre. Yeah, which is, I mean, it's not Iggy's favorite book. Iggy's favorite book is, uh, I think, probably it's one of out of I Am Bat, which is just about a sort of bat with a funny voice. I do. He likes fruit, or uh, I want my hat back, which you might. Oh, have read. I want my hat back. It's incredible. Which is about a, which I also do a funny voice for for Bear, but um, he he does Bear twist. Kills a rabbit at the end. <laughs> you just bad. have to gloss that over. Like, <laughs> I mean, like you see your kid, like in the final season, bear has the hat having killed a rabbit. You could just like point him a hat, going, "Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> okay." Um, but, yes. Uh, I, I also, like, is it? In it... Uh, well, I mean, I sort of go through phases where I just get really into one writer. Um, so I was really into Gene Reese when I wrote Burke, and then I was in his Kafka, and I've been really into like Bruce Chatwin, who I really like. Oh, right, the graduate. Huh? What did he write? No, he didn't write the song lines. Um, the song lines. He has all this stuff about um, nomadism and uh, oh. why settled civilization is bad for us and uh, how we uh, all need to um, live more sort of. Uh, Freely uh, across the, the world, as uh, like we to revive some sort of nomadism to remedy the sort of the anime of modern existence. Doesn't work now with the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> uh, Everyone just move around as much as you can. I have been reading um, a couple of things during the pandemic, which I think have really resonated. With it. So one of them is uh, so Philip K. Dick, um, and like the stuff is stuff like the Free Stigmata of Palmer Aldrich about sort of. Um, uh, people forced to live in um, off-world colonies for reasons of climate change and overpopulation who spend all their time living in a sort of um, fantasy version of 1950s and 60s America being uh, sold to them and they just sort of live in internal and they live in, in, inside in these little locked away in these little communities. Fantasy. I don't see how that would resonate. Why and, would that resonate? <laughs> yeah and um uh, it's almost too much things like that like it, yeah. I, I fully understand that it's kind of you know obviously people could surmise things that would then come true but at the same time it feels too much like witchcraft sometimes I uh, just he had Philip K Dick is like a prophet absolutely I mean and he, he goes into like all his books ultimately end up all his best books all end up in some sort of mystical religious sort of um theologizing because he had himself um these very profound religious experiences um that informs his work Hang uh, on, i'm sorry i didn't know about that what what happened to him or what did he experience? Um, he had this experience of um he believed he encountered a sort of divine intelligence um that told him that his son had a, a congenital hernia um that he event that needed curing or he'd, he'd die and his son did turn out to have a said hernia and he um i mean he spent a lot of time uh, it would be hard not to continue believing that if that had happened yeah. and it would and he, he spent a lot of time writing down his encounters with this intelligence in this journal that he called the exegesis um and he wrote this this book it is one of his best books is it's called valis which is um actually i referenced it at the start of infinitely full of popers and it's one that's sort of inspired for wherever it this it's a space it's like a fictionalized version of these experiences um about his processing them and overcoming them well not overcoming them but processing them and kind of incorporating them into his into his life <laughs> and it's amazing i mean he, yeah uh and uh, so he he thought that uh, he came to believe that sort of 
time had stopped around the time of the crucifixion of Christ um, and that uh, sort of the, the world he knew was a sort of fantasy, uh, which is a big part of obviously his worlds will just simulate because of American yeah. capitalism is sort of uh, um, this um, just a simulation masking deep horror and torture. Um, but uh, also um, the other thing I've been uh, reading recently and reading at the moment, which is sort of really resonating with the pandemic stuff, is The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann, which is about um, uh, uh, it's a sort of it's, it's about um, a sanatorium in uh, sort of pre just before World War One sort of era where everyone is dying of tuberculosis um, and doesn't want to admit this to themselves. And um, it's, it's some really cheery stuff to yeah. escape the yes. current surrounding. Yeah. Wow. Gosh. And obviously, Thomas Mann said like the sickness of their bodies is part of the sickness of Europe's soul and things like this. But it's sort of you know it's it's, it's excellent. I really enjoyed the fact that in your book you were able to articulate some of the collective joy that came about in 2017 around the election. I was thinking it especially of the use of the incredible meme, but it was more than a meme about uh, celebrating the election with a big bag of cans in the park with your friends. Yeah. And um, I think it's such an important, it was such an important movement and such an important thing for a whole generation of activists, especially people on the left, um, well, activists on the left, but young people, eh, I'm fudging it. You know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And I think it's something that has not really been examined publicly. It's not really been celebrated publicly, obviously, because it doesn't fit the narrative of, yeah, you know, socialism is unpopular. Or, and it's the danger of being forgotten as well. Like, yeah. I think people sort of, it's, it feels like it happened in a dream. It doesn't really feel like it relates properly to everything else now. Do you know what that reminds me of? Have you read a book by um, the journalist uh, from Turkey, uh, Ece Temel Kuran? It's called How to Lose a Country. Um, in it, she talks about how incredibly important it is to remember these moments that yeah. you have, um, like almost like a carnival moment where kind of um, uh, authority is suspended and where things are different for that time. Yeah. And she talks about some particular protests that she was a part of um, I think sort of around 2010 and about kind of keeping those moments because they're so powerful and so important. Um, yeah, I really... Well, that to the ontology point as well. Like, you know, you think yeah. about the possibilities yeah. that might be inherent in that moment had we done things differently. I don't know. I, I'm, I, I couldn't tell you exactly what we could have done differently, but presumably we could have done something differently because it got really bad by 2013. Yeah. Um, about, yeah. It's know. a funny thing. I think it is actually quite a deep and exhausting thing to fight an election campaign with all of your heart and soul. And yeah. I think a lot of people really did that in 2017 because for the first time in their life, they felt that there was a positive offer coming from government. But I also think that was three or four months of all of our lives where, you know, I for one was going out uh, canvassing on a nearly daily basis. I think yeah. so much. I, I almost wasn't working. I was just focusing on the election every day. Actually, yeah. to then have to fight a new election two years later is too soon and too yeah, difficult. Definitely. Even just that, and then that's and not a lot of bad blood by then, like in every well, permeating across everything. Like the problem we have is society as a whole 
doesn't necessarily want to examine all of the conditions that led to these things. And that's a worry because they will just happen again, no matter yes. who's in power in the Labour Party. That, but then I guess but the point is to try and think it through and to think differently about it and to kind of get some perspective on it where you can um, move forward, um, you know, uh, I, I try to say, I'm trying to think of a better word than productively, but I'll just say that because apparently we only have five minutes left. Um, and, I like that uh, you'll be more, um, you'll be more <laughs> responsible than me. I took that on board, but I took yeah. it on board in a very slick, presentarial way. <laughs> but um, the, uh, I mean, I do talk in a book about how how thought you know, uh, can be a kind of an important tool of hope, <laughs> tool for hope. And uh, yeah, uh, I think that's sort of where we are at right now with um with uh trying to organize something better unfortunately um you know we just have most of what paths to action we have presently are limited and confused or impossible because there's a lockdown mm. Mm. but exactly as you say and this is something we say with arts emergency that there's no recession of the imagination and i think yeah. what i love about your book is it really reminds me that philosophy is in itself a, a joyful, imaginative, creative thing as much mm. as it is kind of this, uh, the image that people have of philosophy. And philosophy is relevant to our everyday lives and to all of the things that occur to us and the, all of the things we care about. So, you know, I, I really enjoy the fact that the book is funny and poetic and, you know, real about your personal life in, in, in sort of nice ways too. And so I really recommend the book to people. Uh, cool. Well, um, thanks so much for doing this. It's really fun to talk to you and okay. I hope we talk again. Yeah, I hope I said something articulate that we didn't just oh, end up listen. excitedly clashing against each other. And just no, I, it was confusing to everybody. <laughs> and my problem is that I, I don't think I'm the world's most coherent interviewer and I'm definitely somebody who gets very enthusiastic about things I like mm. and that can complicate it. But I loved talking to you and I'm sure it'll be great. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks very much for supporting us on Patreon. If you don't support us on Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash bookshambles. You get extended episodes each and every week. So, for example, this week you'll hear the full uncut versions of Josie's chat with Tom and Robin's chat with AL. Remember, both of their books are available now. You can get them from your favourite independent bookshop or other places are available as well. Back next week with a new episode. Don't forget to check out Tips for Existence and Science Shambles Q&A and Uncanny Hour and all the blogs and everything else that we're doing at Cosmic Shambles Network. Stay safe, take care, and bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.